Back in the, we're in Judges, the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13, if, you're, if you want to kind of get there, Judges, end of chapter 12 and uh, chapter 13. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit of story. Uh, back in the mid-80s, uh, there was a news article or a study or a report made. I, I can't remember where, uh, but it said that in Miami that the Federal Reserve was able to detect cocaine on something like 50% of the dollar bills that came through the banking system. Something like 50% of the bills had traces of cocaine on it in the mid-80s. Well, most recently in 2018, another study was done and it showed 90% of all the physical money that we have in the United States has some traces of cocaine or other illegal drugs on it. 90%. So odds are, if you have cash in your pocket right now, if you'd like to turn it over, I will properly dispose of it because I do not want you to get caught with money that has traces of cocaine or methamphetamine or pot, which again, I know it doesn't matter here in Colorado, but still, I don't want you to get in trouble. But think about that. One, only one out of $10 has no traces of drugs on it. Where has that money been? How's it been used? Where's it being used? How's it getting all these traces of illegal drugs on it? And does that then change how you perceive the money in your wallet or in your purse? That $20 that you might have, that $20 bill, is still a real $20 bill, right? It's still worth $20, and you can buy something for $20 with that, dollar, with that $20 bill. The fact that it has been used, perhaps in the past, to pay for something illegal doesn't change the fact in your hand it is worth $20. You do not see the history of that bill. What you see is the value of that bill in your hands right now. And that value, I know, goes up and down with the economy, and that's where my entire illustration breaks down. But your value before God does not matter what you've been through, what you have been touched by, what you have been tainted by, what experiences you've had. Your value is still 100% in God's eyes, immensely valuable. The full value and worth of your life has never changed based on what you've gone through who you know, who you don't know, what you've experienced, what you didn't do right, what you did right, regardless of everything that we've been involved in, your life, who you are as a person, is immensely valuable to God because he's placed value on it. Now, we're going to see three people at the beginning of the message, but at the end of chapter 12, that have two verses associated to them, maybe three, very little said about them. We don't see their great influence. We don't see them being a Jephthah. We don't see them being a Gideon. Just three judges that come and go real quick. Doesn't show us a lot of value about what they've done. But before God's eyes, regardless of how many scripture verses their name contains, they are valuable before God. No matter how many verses our names contain, we are just as valuable before God does not matter what we go through. It does not matter what songs are written about us. does not matter what plaques are made in our honor. does not matter if we have a statue or a street named after it. That's irrelevant to your value before God. 
three people that we see, and that's in Judges chapter 12, verse 8, all the way through 15. We have these three people who are just here for a moment and gone. Don't judge them by how much Scripture talks about them. God raised them up and used them just like he raises up us and uses us in ways that the rest of the world may never know or acknowledge. We have value just like they do. So starting in verse 8, I'm just going to read through verse 8 through 15. After him, that is Jephthah, after Jephthah died, Ebzen of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, 60 kids. Just let that sink in for a second. He lived in a house with 60 offspring. I kind of imagine there was probably more than one mom in the situation, but it doesn't say, but 60, 60 kids. I'm trying to adjust my life to one puppy. Imagine 60 kids. How many years were they in diapers? I mean, that would, that would have been insane. Okay, 30 sons, 30 daughters that he gave in marriage outside his clan. So he had to marry off 30 daughters. And 30 daughters he brought in from the outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried in Bethlehem. So all, we're, all we know about Ibsen is that he judged Israel. He was raised up as a king, and he served Israel. Maybe he went to war with them. We're not told about any of his exploits. But we are told he had 60 weddings to get to. And in those 60 weddings, he had to find 60 or 30 brides and 30 grooms for his kids. That had to be a full-time job in and of itself, finding 60 suitable people for your kids to marry. But he did. But he did. And then he died. Verse 10. Died in Bethlehem. Now, if we are thinking geographically, if we consider Calvary and the entirety of Pueblo as sort of like the nation of Israel, geography-wise, Bethlehem would be south of us. So it would be in that direction, probably past northern, kind of whatever is really south of us towards where Pueblo Boulevard kind of meets Prairie down there by Walmart, kind of way down south there. That's kind of where Bethlehem would be in relationship to Jerusalem. So that's where he lived, he died. Verse 11, then after him, Elan of the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel 10 years. Then Ebulon the Zebulonite died and was buried in Ijaln in the land of Zebulon, which is sort of a little bit north of us. We're not told about how many daughters or sons he had. He just judged Israel. He did a faithful job, and then he died. Verse 13, and after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel, and he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithite, died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. This poor guy only had 40 sons. Nothing like our first guy who had 60 children. He only had 40 and 30 grandsons. But the key is they rode donkeys. Why is that significant? That is significant because they're not riding horses. 
And you're going, Tim, is the heat getting to you this morning? No, it isn't. Horses in that day and age were a sign of one thing and one thing only, war. You had a horse for battle and for war. You had donkeys when there was just peace and trade. When there was peace in the land, you rode a donkey. You didn't need to get there fast. It showed a sign of wealth and a relaxed moment of peace. And so during the time of these three judges, who seemed to be somewhat insignificant, not a lot going on in their lives, God brought the land tremendous peace. Yet each one of them were valuable and important in God's eyes and in his kingdom for the advancement of the gospel, which in this time would have been the promise of the Messiah, that the Messiah would one day come and be king once and for all. Moving forward, we get to chapter 13, which is the beginning of the life of Samson. Now, I think as we begin the story of Samson, which we just get into his announcement of his birth and his birth today, I think Samson would be very at home in Pueblo. And the reason why I say that is Samson means like child or man of the sun, S-U-N. And so I think he would look at 300 days of sunshine and go, this is an awesome place for me to live. And he would just be thrilled with the fact that nature surrounded him, the sun was bright, and, and he just enjoyed the outdoors. All of that being said, before we get to the story of Samson, there has to be a reason. Why was Samson raised up? Why was Samson needed? We had three great judges, and there was at the end of these three great judges, peace in the land. There wasn't any war going on until that last judge, Abdon, died. And verse 1 of chapter 13 gives us a scary commentary on life in Israel. It says, and the people of Israel, okay, the nation of Israel, all of those tribes that came out of Egypt, all of those tribes that saw Gideon and saw Jephthah, all of those tribes that had been following these judges who had loved God, who had put out idols, who had started right worship of God, then these people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistine for 40 years. Again, again, and again. Israel, you have been blessed, obviously, at the last judge with a time of peace a time of great resource renewal, a time of worship, a time where there was goodness happening in your land. And the moment that they're out of the picture, the moment that leader has died, you go right back to what your forefathers did before those judges. You did what was evil in the eyes of God. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Isaiah says... Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness out for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God said long time ago, it is the wrong thing to do is to call evil good and good evil. 
That is not a modern-day, 21st-century American problem. That has been a problem from the very beginning when God called a people to serve him. Those people would get tweaked and switched in that nation and that culture would all of a sudden just have this moment where they went crazy and they forgot what God had taught and they are headlong sold into the opposite of what God has said. If God said it's light, they'd say it's dark. If it's night, they'd say it's dawn. If they said it was right, they would say it was wrong. I know that we probably have run into people who, for whatever reason, will just simply say the opposite of what you say just to argue with you, regardless if it has any meaning at all whatsoever. If you say, hey, that was a great game last night. Oh, no, it was terrible. We only won by 10 points. Or, the, oh, man, that was a huge fish you caught. Oh, no, it wasn't. I caught a bigger one. And whatever it is, they always complain and always try to contradict what you say. Well, there are people that approach God and do the very same, and they try to contradict what God says so that they would find comfort in sin. So they will say marriage, no, nah, marriage isn't between one man and one woman. It's between anyone and anything that it wants to be. You can't tell me that there's only two sexes. I want something more than that. You can't tell me that I should work for my money. It should be given to me. And the list goes on and on and on. And before long, that culture that once was influenced with right and wrong is totally confused about its ethics and its morals. And it starts to promote, not just accept, but promote what is wicked and evil in God's eyes. And you might say, Tim, how do we really know what is wicked and evil in God's eyes? It feels like they're saying it's right, we're saying it's wrong, and, and we're just disagreeing. I can be 100% absolute certain about what is right and wrong. And not because I am certain, not because I have a better opinion, it's because God has been very super clear about what is right and wrong morally in my life and in your life and in the life of the nation. There is no confusion or uncertainty about what is morally right and morally wrong. Killing an infant still in the womb is wrong morally back then as it is today, as it will be in a thousand years. It is wrong. And for anyone to stand up and contradict that, they are fighting against, not me. They're not fighting against conservative politics. They're not fighting against history. They're fighting against God. Who did they do evil in the sight of? Not the religious minority, not the conservatives. They did evil in the sight of whom? God. God is the one who's watching. God is the one who sees. God is the one who judges. God is the one who puts the standard of right and wrong. And when you violate that and promote its violation, you're not fighting against the poles. You're not fighting against your livelihood. You're fighting against God himself. That is who the culture is at war with. The culture is not at war with conservative Christians or conservative politics. The war has fought against God. And it is, it is a dangerous thing. Horribly dangerous, horribly scary to fight against God.
I guarantee you, God will always win. God will never compromise. God will never say, I'll let it slide. He values you too much to let evil ruin you and influence you. He loves you too much for you to be comfortable in sin. He will bring conviction, and he will bring that little voice in your head that says, you know that's not right. You know that's not right. In fact, Romans 1 is full of it. Romans 1 says, it doesn't matter what you say. You still know in your heart that there is a God. You still know that in creation there is someone who says, I am sovereign, and it's not you. It's God. Every single time you go against God or a nation goes against God or a culture goes against God or a movement goes against God, I guarantee it, God will bring judgment. That has me weary for our own country. Because if our own country really is sold on calling evil good and good evil, then I know what was going to happen. Maybe not in my generation or maybe not even in my kids' generations. But I can tell you, the writing is on the wall, that judgment will come severely upon this nation. But not all hope is lost. It's not all doom and gloom because verse 2 happens. And if verse 2 happens here, as verse 2 has happened so many times already in the book of Judges, I have hope that things can turn around. And things are not going to turn around politically or socially or economically or through education. No, no, no. That's, God never turns around a nation based upon those things. Do you know how he turns around a nation? He shows the nation someone, someone unique, someone incredibly different, someone who has the standard and bears upon their own shoulders God's justice and God's mercy. He brings a deliverer. He brings himself incarnate ultimately in Jesus Christ, but shows it to us here in Judges 13 through a person named Samuel. And the likeness of what happens with um, Samuel. Samson and Jesus are remarkable. Listen to these verses and see if this does not remind you of the story and birth of Jesus. And also Sarah and Abraham, but also Jesus. Verse 2 of chapter 13. There was a certain man of Zorah, the man of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, which just simply means a man, of, man at rest. And his wife was barren and had no children. Kind of reminds you of Abraham and Sarah. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born a child, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to the Lord or to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and in his appearance he was like the appearance of an angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. 
But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and to the day of his death. So she's out in the field doing something, and all of a sudden the angel of the Lord appears and says, Guess what? I know you're barren, but you're going to behold a son, and that son is going to save God's people. A lot of remarkable similarities between Abraham and Sarah, who also was barren, and the angel of the Lord came to Abraham and said, hey, this is going to happen. Sarah overhears it in the tent, and Sarah's reaction is what? Laughs. Says, you're crazy. I'm well past the childbearing age. There's no way I'm going to have a child. And laughs, and of course, God gets the last laugh. His word is always going to become true. In comes Isaac. And the same thing with Mary. Not that she was barren, but she was a virgin. And says, by the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, you're going to have a son. And then she goes and tells Joseph, hey, guess what's going to happen? And Joseph's response was what in the New Testament? You're crazy. This didn't happen. I'm going to have to figure out a way to put you away silently and quietly so that you do not get a bad rep for getting pregnant, because obviously you must have had a relationship with a man in order to become pregnant. Pregnant, And then God does what in Joseph's life? Visits him and gives him the same message, which happens in the next set of verses. Verse 9, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. I think he had a very natural reaction. God, help, because if this is true, then we're going to need to know a lot more. Right now, you've told me he's going to be a Nazarite, which means a person of vow. And in Leviticus chapter 6, Moses gave instructions about what a vow looked like for a Nazarite, or just meaning a man of a vow. Meant for 30 days, 30 days, you did not cut your hair. For 30 days, you did not drink alcohol. And for 30 days, you did not touch dead people. Now, that last one I got no problem with. I never, you're never going to have to ask me, Tim, I think you should refrain from touching dead people. Got it. Done. Won't do it. But cutting the hair, as some people would quickly point out, Tim, you don't have any hair not to cut. I do have hair. It's just kind of short and spiky, but it's there. But he was not supposed to cut any, cut his hair at all during this 30 days. And during that 30-day period, um, uh, make sure you don't drink alcohol or eat anything unclean. So when it came to the cleanliness laws of what you could eat or not eat, what we might call kosher laws today, you had to be very strict about that. And it was for only a 30-day period, not an entire life. Only 30 days did you do that because it showed you and it showed the rest of the people around you that you were seriously doing something for God. And it was a way for you to set apart a certain amount of time, 30 days, to do something very important for God, whether it was to go um, serve him in a special way, make sure that you committed to him in a certain way. It was a way to show the world around you, I'm committing my life for this 30 days for God. What was different in the life of Samson is that from the womb, he was supposed to be like this. 
So even his mom said, okay, for, third, you know, for the entirety, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to touch anything unclean. I'm going to eat things that are only clean, and I'll refrain from probably cutting her hair. I don't know during the pregnancy. But for Samson, those three things were vital for him. And so he did it. But Manoah said, Lord, this is a lot to take in. I need your help. And what's beautiful is that he went to God and said, God, you help me. He didn't wrestle with this on his own. He didn't try to figure it out on his own and solve it. He goes to God and says, this is too big for me, too much for me. Are you sure this is going to happen? She's barren, can't have kids. And if so, you got to help us here because this is a lot for me to take in. And so God listened to the voice of Manoah in verse 9. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And so Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? I love Manoah's faith. Did you catch that? He didn't say, if your words come true, did he? He said, now when your words come true, what's he supposed to do? He's already looking past the miraculous birth. He's already looking past that very first nine months of, okay, we're going to have a kid. He wants to know, how is he going to be special for God? Because if he's going to take a Nazarite vow, and that's going to be his lifestyle, then what special way are you going to use him? Why are you raising him up? Why is he going to be important for the kingdom? And the angel of the Lord said to him in verse 13, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean, all that I've commanded her, let her observe. Okay, but let, let me go back to the question that Manoah asked. Manoah said, now when this comes true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And this is the answer. Uh, yeah, everything that's going to happen is going to come true. Uh, don't let her do these things. Anyone else notice that he didn't answer the question? Right? He just reinforced exactly what Manoah needed to know. Your wife needs to follow these things as well. Didn't answer the question. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. Now, we might understand that word detain a little bit different. He didn't mean, hey, you're kind of under arrest, but not kind of under arrest. He just said, hey, we basically just want to hang out for a little while, so I'm not going to let you go. I want you to stay here for a little while. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful. Oh, I wonder what this guy's name is. 
It's got to be amazing. I mean, he's eluding that question. He's eluding his true identity. I think this may be exactly who Gideon saw. And we saw back when Gideon had this angel of the Lord appear to him that it could be a Christophany, which is a fancy biblical word for it could be the pre-incarnate Christ revealing himself in a very special way. It could be an angel, but this angel, instead of eating like he did with Abraham, he wants a sacrifice. Who gets a sacrifice in the Old Testament? Who's the only person that we're to sacrifice to? God, only God, until Christ came as our substitute. And so the angel is saying, if you want to do anything for me, sacrifice. I think this is a subtle way for the angel of the Lord to describe to Manoah and to us. This is God in a very unusual way, in a very usual form, because his message was so vitally important. He didn't want to leave it up to anyone else. And so, with his name still being mysterious, verse 19, Manoah took the young goat for grain and grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord and to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And then, and when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. If Manoah and his wife needed any reassurance that this was a miraculous event occurring, I think all their doubts were satisfied. Mysterious man, yes. Appears and disappears, yes. And then receives the offering and burnt offering, both the goat and the grain offering, and then disappears into the flames of the altar fire? How is that possible? Humanly, it's not possible. It's only a hand and act of God that makes this possible. God is doing something really special at this point, with the man of the sun. And we end the chapter in verse 21. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Why? Why would he not appear again? He already gave the message. God only has to say it once, and it is. They didn't need any more reassurance. The man had already come back twice. Didn't need to do it again. His message was clear, it's true, believe it, accompanied by a miraculous ascent into heaven. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Now, this may be a little bit of overdramatic attitude of Manoah, but I think it's reasonably normal to feel that way, because none of us have seen God. None of us have had an experience of an angel of the Lord coming to us and telling us that our barren wife is going to have a child. And no one else has seen the angel of the Lord ascend through the flames of a burnt offering. So I think we too might, for that moment, fall down and worship and at the same time go, uh-oh, this really was God in front of me. We shall surely die. But his wife said to him, great to have a godly wife. If the Lord had meant to kill us, 
we, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us all these things. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Menadian between Zorah and Estherl, which is kind of to our east, to the east. That's where the Danites were. That's where Samson was born. That's where Manoah was, to the east of where we're at, uh, right on the sea, uh, Mediterranean Sea. So chapter 13 shows us an incredible potential that Samson has. It talks about his godly heritage. He definitely came from a God-fearing family that was not following the culture. They were not calling evil good and good evil. They were following God, maybe in their own unique way, but God certainly saw in them a faithful couple that would raise this child to have great potential for the kingdom of God, as we will see in following chapters. We see his calling in life, and we see his vow that he needed to be separate. He needed to be unique and different than the culture around him because the culture around him was what? Doing evil in God's eyes. And so he was going to stand out as an unshaven, hairy man who never touched dead people, who only ate a certain type of food, and um, never partied. And that was a sign to the rest of the people around him that God was with this man. And we know that God was with this man because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He was raised up for something very particular, very special, very needed for God's people. And as we see in Christ, it was for our salvation, for our redemption, and for the people of Israel and Samson, it was for their salvation from the Philistines, first and foremost, a physical salvation from the oppression and a spiritual salvation from their wicked and evil ways. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 10, and let me just, I just want to read that one verse. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you remember from the very beginning of the message, I said that a recent study in 2018 said that 90% of the U.S. currency had traces of illegal substance on it. 90% of the U.S. currency. There might feel like there's 90% of us that's tainted by the world's influence. But that doesn't matter how we might feel tainted or what our past lives may have experienced, not our past lives, our past experiences in this single life that we've experienced, because our goal is all the same. All of us have exactly the same calling and spirit of the Lord upon us that we would be his workmanship, that we would display God's work. What is God's work? Ultimately, it's his redemption. You are on display to show the world around you what redemption looks like, what mercy looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what loves look like, what grace looks like. God has made you 
to demonstrate his redemption to the world around you. That's his workmanship. You are his workmanship. You are the one who has such tremendous value that his son died on your behalf. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's our calling, it's our responsibility, it's our gift to turn that work that God has done in us to demonstrate it to the world around us. Now, will the world listen? It's irrelevant. Will the world persecute us? Irrelevant. Will the world pay attention to us and change? Irrelevant. God never asks us of that. God never asks us to change the world. God never asks us to change the person next to us. God never asks us to change the political system. What he asks us to do is be his workmanship, demonstrate to the world around you what redemption is like. As I pray, I'm going to ask the band to come up and lead us in our final song. And why don't we just stand right now? Why don't we just stand as we pray? Father, you are amazingly good to us. You are amazingly patient with us, and you have created us to be an example of the world of what redemption is truly like. Help us, Father, to be examples of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. Help us, Father, to be vehicles of that message of Jesus Christ and not distract from it and not to be harmful to that message, but to be brilliant in that message so that your name, which is wonderful, might be declared not just from the heavens, but from our nation as well. Please, Father, heal our nation. Heal all of those systems that fight against you. Bring them to salvation. Bring them to repentance. Bring them to their knees that they may claim you as their Lord and Savior. Rid us of the evil, Father, and may you establish good. May your blessing be upon us, and may your mercy flow in us. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen.